Hey folks, welcome back. This is Elliot with the Poor Pearls Almanac here with my co-host. What's up? It's Andy. Yeah, we're doing this thing. Um, and you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon if you're enjoying what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcast. We don't explicitly offer any traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our Patreons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone. But we have started up with a Patreon-only miniseries called The Prologues, during which we will do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series up on the Patreon as well, so if you want to hear stuff from all of the episodes, go check it out. We've also released one episode that was asked by popular demand for public consumption, so that's a good place to check it out and see if you would like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available, and we're including some footage from Andy's farm putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there and some animals, check out the Patreon. Any support we can get to offset the actual costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. We're on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there, and we also have a Discord where we have an open discussion about some of the topics that we're talking about. Yeah. So, in this episode, we're talking with Ask PDFs from people with institutional access, and we had a conversation about... What did we talk about, Andy? What did we talk about? So, Asks for PDFs from People with Institutional Access is a Facebook group which organizes over 100,000 people that are either interested in research or work with the school and have access to said research. Because, as you've noticed, a lot of our episodes so far have been fairly knowledge heavy. And a lot of it's not stuff you can traditionally find if you just Google any of the subject matters that we've looked into, especially in the most recent series that we did, the Pearl Model series. And a lot of that comes from research that's been done by academics. And the goal of the project is to make that research accessible to everyone instead of just people that work for universities or other research institutions. The conversation sort of shifted from access for individuals to the, the role of limiting access to places, primarily colonized regions, to limit access to things like medical knowledge and things like that. So we, we ended up tying this into, I guess, the role of capitalism and making sure that there's equitable and um, symmetrical access to knowledge so that people across the globe can develop and construct the things they need through the ownership of the public domain. Right. And the current system that we have now is sort of a closed loop where the people who are, I guess, how do we say this? The people who are supported to do the research are the same people who are validating the research, who are the same people who are packaging the information and data done uh, collected from that research, and those are the same people who are publishing the information. So there's this like closed loop where as this information and, and data is collected, and it's sort of like they sell licenses to use it, but only to specific groups and not, you know, it's not... It's priced so that people can't access it individually or even when you consider uh, global capitalism where the U.S. dollar can be used as a tool to make information inaccessible even to major universities internationally. And, you know, it, it speaks to... One of the things I use as like one of my common thoughts about any subject matter is if the information doesn't follow what seems like logic then you aren't seeing the whole picture and you know as a former academic that was always my big issue is like why do schools buy into 
the research model where these peer-reviewed quote-unquote journals have so much sway and charge them so much money to access the information that their own researchers are doing. And in this conversation that we have, the, the missing pieces that make that, we, that oddity make sense kind of come to light. And, you know, it speaks to a lot of the things we've talked about in this podcast in terms of the role of global capitalism and limiting access and information to the people that need it the most. So hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation. When we started this project, I was familiar with the Asks for PDFs Facebook page because I'm a former academic who I, I just enjoy doing research. And as you probably know, you lose access pretty quickly. And even when you are in an institution, you still sometimes have limited access to things that you want. So for folks that aren't familiar with asks for PDFs from uh, people with institutional access, can you tell them about it a bit? I study, I'm in a graduate program at a major Canadian university in visual studies and architecture, uh, this kind of field. Um, I'm working on education related to architecture and, and the arts and the ways that that intersects with, um, you know, different forms of colonialism and capitalism in the classroom and also art of the classroom. And this Facebook group, it you have a request for a certain uh, paper or PDF, academic, scientific, um, you know, medicine, whatever it is, you post a request on the group someone who's also a member of the group has that access maybe through their university, through their hospital, whatever it is, they access the paper and they give it to you. You know, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, there's not really, uh, it's not that there's no space for discussions or these kinds of things, but that's not really the purpose of the group. You know, it's sort of very mechanical. You have this thing you want, there's no way to get it. Here's a way to get it, period. Um, that's kind of, I guess that's kind of the goal of the group is to make that possible. Fair enough. So we start a lot of our episodes with the idea that we are trying to share knowledge and information. And we have a little catchphrase that knowledge is for everyone. And I feel like this fits very snugly right into place with what we're talking about. Um, there is this uh, paywall behind information and knowledge at some point when, you know, any person will have questions, whether you're just curious about a hobby or you are going to school to learn about a subject, at some point you're gonna have questions that most likely somebody has already asked before. And so that information is out there, it is available, but you know, you shouldn't have to pay for that when you've spent so much time, which you know, time is money. You've spent so much time looking for the answer, like, and some, you know, other people are discussing it. It's not like it's some secret. So why why do, why do you have to go through all the trouble of having to pony up or ante up some money for it. And so it's an interesting concept. And it seems like this is a very simple way of using, you know, the social media tool to tackle a simple problem. I'm looking for this information, like who has it. And also, you know, when somebody else asks for information that you have, you, you share as well. Sorry, how long has the group uh, been around or active? I'm not actually sure when the group started because there were, I remember initially there were like a bunch of smaller groups um, that different people had started. I had started, I had started one myself and we ended up essentially saying we, you know, we, we might as well consolidate some of these groups together. Um, so that's effectively what happened. Uh, I closed the group I ran, for example, um, and then I moved over to this group. Um, it only had like maybe a thousand people on it. Um, and this group at the time, 
had maybe 20,000 people on it. Um, and now it's, I think, close to like 100,000, which is a lot. Um, possibly too much. You know, we're kind of bumping up against those um, like limitations of being able to moderate a group that large that Facebook itself places, you know, sort of structurally. And to be honest, I don't think there's a, there's like a solution to that. You know, it's, we're, we're, it's, we're really looking for a job that the platform on which we're operating does not, you know, does not place any kind of importance. So it's not surprising, but it's also, you know, we're, we're, we're like, we're at that level where things are becoming very difficult because of the way Facebook is designed. Um, and I, I can describe that in detail, you know, some of it is pretty, uh, pretty interesting maybe maybe not um like not something people would notice yeah i i'm kind of curious we um we interviewed uh dr Newby from project gutenberg um and they, they still operate as an all-volunteer team uh and i was really curious about how that actually works in practice and i mean i i mod a small group uh it's like five thousand people and uh, it's for the four of us, it's like sometimes can be like chaos. So I can only imagine uh, what's going on in something like that. Well, I think, you know, many of the problems come from this desire, I think, within the design of Facebook to create a system that's, it's very cut and dry, you know, like either this person is a problem and they need to be kicked out of the group or they're allowed to stay and they can do anything they want. And I think part of it is because it those kinds of decisions drive engagement on Facebook. You know, it's not really a question of how can we moderate this engagement? It's more of a question of how can we moderate who gets to engage and who doesn't, you know, which is like two different ways of thinking about engagement. And I very much would want to moderate how we engage. I'm not really so concerned in like sort of laying down the law about who gets to engage. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so we often get these problems where, for example, someone will post a request, let's say, for something that um, might be considered, let's let's call it problematic, right? Um, and in honestly, in almost every single case I've seen where someone is posting a request for something like this, they want to look into it because they're they're doing some research that is working against that history or against that piece of information. Like they're deliberately requesting it because they're working against it. Um, and I honestly think that's great. You know, like go back to the original sources. If you want to take a huge shit on something because it's like genuinely terrible, you got to read what it says, you know? Right. Um, but the the like the pylon of people being like, oh my God, this is so terrible. How dare you ask for this? Don't you know this author was, you know, a racist, a pedophile, whatever it is, um, is so quick and so instant that it like sort of immediately, you know, uh, just like prevents that request one from being answered. And also two prevents that person, I think, from sort of willing to put themselves into this position of like, let's actually see how we can engage with these horrible reprehensible ideas at like a structure level. Suddenly they're like sort of left behind and they're like relying on doing this on like a superficial level where they're like, these ideas look bad. You know, instead of how can these ideas like be be shown to be bad or something like this? Right, right. It's taking a specific example of something that's bad and taking the idea of it and showing that, you know, that's a bad thing. And it's a simple, it, I mean, it's not simple, but I guess it's a way of 
uh, swapping out or replacing the bad thing with the idea of the bad thing. That is, you know, I don't want to use this word, but I will. It's toxic in itself because it, you know, it prevents people from uh, seeing the other side of things clearly, um, which is, you know, it can be dangerous, but it can also be beneficial uh, depending on what that person does with the knowledge. But but you're you're saying we shouldn't really police whether they should have that knowledge or not. You're saying, you know, knowledge is for everyone and let that person do what they will with it. That That's a different story. That's a different kind of policing that you'd have to deal with at that point, right? Yeah. I think in many ways, like, I don't know, I, I want to trust people, you know, I think people are good. And if you're on a group that's about sharing PDFs for research, like I have a hard time imagining there's some, you know, extremely vile, like sort of, you know, person who's maybe writing a manifesto on like racial purity or something like I'm not, I would not be expecting that kind of person to be a part of a group like that. You know, those people have their own spaces. So like, what is this expectation that we're trying to police like each other within our already small sort of splinter groups? It just seems unproductive, you know? Um, Absolutely. And yeah. you, you also take the roots of where Facebook started, where you needed a college uh was it a college email address to sign up for Facebook originally? Mm -hmm. And it was for college students and finding a way to connect academia and social and in intermingle all of those things. And now it's turned into something else where the exact idea of the group is to share information and knowledge between, you know, mm -hmm. people who are trying to research and learn yeah. whatever information. And now it, it, it's become a problem through the terms of use agreement and whatever social contract people have when they go on and argue about whatever the hell they're arguing about on Facebook. Yeah. yeah. And, and that argument, I, I like, it's, it's such a structural part of how Facebook is designed, you know? Um, it's like, for example, and, and, you know, I'm completely drawing these examples from like actual, uh, you know, events that have happened on the group that I could show you, for example, um, like if we wanted screenshots or something, but so, so let's say someone posts this request, for something that other people consider reprehensible, um, you know, instantly it starts to get this sort of the react button, right? Like people will react very quickly. Um, let's say 800 people decided to uh, like like the post, but then maybe 25 or 50 people decided to angry react on the post, or even if two people decided to angry react on the post, right? That post honestly is going to be higher up in the uh, scrolling order than a post that received 9,000 just likes. Because of that, that little tension. Right. And then the other interesting thing is that when you look at the post, if you're just sort of scrolling through, it'll say 850 people have reacted to this. And then right next to it, you'll see a little icon of an angry face and a little icon of a like. Hmm. Almost implying that like 850 people are evenly split between anger and support, which is totally not true. Right. It's like 50 people have angry reacted and 800 people have like positive reacted. So, you know, it's sort of implying this kind of, oh, everything is is even like people are some people agree, some people disagree. It's sort of like denying you that like simple math of like, OK, there's only a few people who disagree with this. And that's just one thing. Right. Mm -hmm. When people start commenting on these posts, which is another, you know, moderation nightmare. Um, like, let's say you you see this post and you decide to maybe respond in some detail, right? You decide to sort of 
break down the source. You're like, well, you know, you're requesting a source by this person and this person supported, I don't know, colonialism in, you know, Belgian colonialism in Africa. And, you know, this is a very, like, I can't believe you're requesting the source, but at the same time, if you're writing a paper from this point of view, then the source might be actually be useful because it contains this kind of evidence. And, you know, maybe you decide to unpack it a little bit and like right. try and help this person out, um, you know, maybe clarify their position or something. Within, as soon as you click submit, your comment is going to be squished to like the top three lines and there's going to be little, like a little three dots next Ellipsis. to it. Yeah. You know, and the moment people start piling on, there's like 5,000 comments on this thing Yours is just one of, you know, 10 bazillion comments that people are scrolling through. And now people are reacting to those comments. And because there are so many comments, the comments that go to the top of the list are the ones with the most angry slash happy reacts on it. So then the most like argumentative one-line comments literally are driven to the top. Mm -hmm. And it's just this like horrible, vicious cycle that's impossible to moderate, almost by design. Right. You know? the, al the algorithm isn't uh, designed for you to be able to moderate a discussion. It's designed to create as much discourse as possible. Yeah. And you can't really, you know, control. That's not a discussion. That's that's a bunch of people mumbling in a peanut gallery, which is exactly what they're looking for. And it, it all starts with a simple question of what the hell is going on? You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this all stems back to a really fundamental understanding of, uh, you know, you'd brought up like there's how else would you do something like this? How would you coordinate a connection with all these people that have these resources or are looking for these resources and what Facebook is designed to do? And that's to generate money through marketing by all the refreshing and all of those different activities. They can show 10,000 actions on a post or whatever it might be. And that allows them to charge more money for advertisement. This also points to another issue of the fact that I don't think people outside of academia or research fully understand the complexities of how both research is funded and how access to that research is throttled in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, um, I think maybe people might not know that most of academic publishing is controlled by five publishers. You know, if you've been in school and you've seen one of those, you know, physics textbooks for like a first year class that cost, I don't know, $250 and it's got like a CD in the back or something, it's published by one of these, one of these groups, right? And the names of these groups are increasingly hyphenated because they're just like buying up each other. So I think like the top three right now are, are hyphenated names. So there's Weedle Sevier, Wiley Blackwell, Taylor Francis, um, Springer, and... There's one more that I can't remember right now. But That's the reason that you got that far. <laughs> I mean, this is something that, you know, I'm constantly like, oh my God, these, yeah. Um, but but some of the numbers I think around these groups are maybe more illustrative of how, like how deep this problem goes. Something like 70% of all papers in the social sciences are published by one of these five, you know, conglomerates. And I think something like 55% of all papers in the sciences are published by these groups which is, you know, I mean, that's staggering, you know, five publishers having control of 50% to 70% of all academic publishing is absolutely insane. Yeah. And it doesn't look like that either. If you were to go publish something, you wouldn't think that it's only that many publishers. Oh, yeah. Like it, it's very well hidden. Just like oh, definitely. if you yeah. go to the grocery store and you see, uh, you know, Kraft versus, you know, whatever brand, and they're all owned by 
craft or Kellogg or whoever it is. I, I don't know. But yeah, that same uh, model has kind of taken place in academia. So yeah, um, a lot of it is a lot of it is that way. And but but essentially, it's it's like almost completely and entirely. I mean, this is not surprising. Profit driven from that point of view. I think in in like 1985, uh, the publishers were making they had a 50 percent profit margin in 1985. You know, like I I can only imagine what those numbers are like now with all that consolidation and uh, you know the monopoly that they've managed to build up over this time because essentially they have very little to no overhead because the research that's being published in the journals that they own is is supported by either the government or you know private funding um, you know these these sort of uh, privately funded institutions for research at a name you know the carrier person's name these institutions are paying for the research. The research is being conducted typically on federally funded or here in Canada, provincially funded laboratories um, or in provincially or, or uh, federally funded universities. But then somehow for that research to be legitimized, it needs to be published in one of these journals. And then the crazy thing is the only place where those journals have uh, a market is in those same universities. You know, it's this horrible cycle into which these five, you know, vampires have like inserted themselves in this like particular point in the life cycle of, of, of research. So the, so, you know, taxpayers pay for the, pay for the research, research is conducted. And for, for some reason it, it like needs to go through this like gateway. And then the same taxpayers purchase that research back you know, suddenly like legitimized by these vampires. It's, it's absolutely right. Insane. Right. So they've created a, a messed up positive feedback loop where they get to double dip for information that, you know, the people have paid for, and then they sell, you know, they compile the information, I guess, into data and then sell it back to the people who paid for it. Yeah. And often it's not even, and, and the reason they have no overhead, this is the thing, they'll always, uh, you know, many of the publishers will often say that what they provide is the thing that makes science work, which is peer review. You know, they're like, oh, this is the journal. We provide peer review. Mm -hmm. Sure, you can do your research in your university, but if it's not peer reviewed, it's not science. That's their argument. But the big dirty secret is that people, like no one's being paid for peer review. Peer review is literally a volunteer process done at universities by those same professors as part of their like, job duties at the university mm. so these people literally have no overhead you know what i mean like it's insane it's insane they're not paying a salary to anyone apart from fucking you know the the, the management <laughs> exactly it's absolutely insane yeah and it's not even like the articles are cheap like every time i go to get one it's like oh this is available for 24 hour access for 20 dollars, or you can buy it for 39.99 it's like a 12 page article so as a layman, what's the stop institutions of, you know, reputation and distinguished places that have the ability to do these peer reviews? What's to stop them from teaming up and say, you know, you conduct your research and we will peer review each other? And how is that not just as legitimate as what the publishers are doing now? I think in many ways, it's it's the, the sort of the years of uh, legitimacy that these journals have built up, you know, honestly, that, that seems to be the main thing, you know, like, right. you, it, 
like it's all based on reputation yeah it's definitely all based on reputation um so you know physics has this uh uh this group called archive where it's with an x um and I, i think there's also an equivalent for biology i can't remember what it's called right now but it kind of follows the same system you know something with an x and an archive where where you can publish free review papers which are often in most cases just identical papers because they typically almost always pass peer review once they reach that point um and so a lot of a lot of places are looking at that but you know uh your work on archive is not as legitimate as your work in you know cell magazine or you know or nature or something like this which one of the big publishers own so it's definitely a legitimacy thing and that's also how they like set up these journals in the first place you know when uh, cell for example they started this journal like literally the publisher started this journal you know sort of purchased the work of this very very important and influential like upcoming guy at MIT asked him to be the journal editor asked him to like you know put together like a who's who list and have them all submit their uh, articles into this very quickly you know astroturfed this like amazing journal everybody wants to be on from out of nowhere and now it's like their journal everybody wants to be on it because that's what makes your career that's how you get the actual money which is not being published in the journal which is appointments at universities you know there's no money for even the scientists in journal publishing literally the only people profiting from it are shareholders in like elsevier or blackwell or whatever it's it's wild yeah i can't even every time i think about that it just makes me so mad uh it's just like surreal and you, you use the word vampires and now that you've explained it I, i see exactly what you mean how they literally just feed on other people's work <laughs> and it's it's peer reviewed by the same people who are doing the work and then they they turn around and say yep th- this is valid like good job good job everybody and then they they, they sit there and count coins <laughs> it's crazy yeah so has the group since you uh been involved with it at least ever been exposed to any um retaliatory actions from any of the publishers or anything like that you know i they haven't and to be honest i would be extremely surprised if they are and okay i i'm i'm trying to figure out how to explain this and honestly the best way to explain this is kind of like so i heard your the most recent podcast you guys put up i like to listen to podcasts when i run and i decided that's you know i'm going to listen to uh the one that you thank you so much so you, the most recent one on at least on my phone i don't know if you put any new ones is the one about the subsistence the subsistence farmers around lake turkana and that's ex- like that's the word i'm looking for subsistence subsistence farming you know what i mean like those guys are not a threat to monsanto you know what i mean like monsanto's not after them even if they manage to get their hand on like some sweet monsanto gmo seeds like monsanto's not coming after them you know what i mean it's kind of the same thing here like this group is literally subsistence education yeah you know we are not a threat and i would honestly be completely shocked if any of the publishers decided that we were a threat it's literally people from um from like countries where i doubt more than two or three major universities even subscribe to any of the big journals you know so in in many cases this is not a market that Reed Elsevier Wiley Springer and would even have a hope of entering so we're not threatening any existing market and i think that's the only thing 
keeping this group safe is the fact that we're not a threat. And no, no problems with Facebook? No problem with Facebook. I, I think, yeah, I mean, if, if Facebook decided to, yeah, I mean, I would be surprised, you know, it's not like, it's not as, let's say, not blatant, like it's definitely very blatant, but it's not as easily, like the profits that, that are being lost are not as easily seen as, let's say, the profits being lost from like a blockbuster movie that's being like torrented or something. You know, like that equivalency just sure. doesn't exist. Those profit margins don't exist that people can see. So we're, we're, we're kind of safe in that way. Because it's not really a black market, it's like a gray market. Yeah. That's badass. I like it. And to speak to that episode, um, pretty much all of the most recent episodes that have been kind of like deep dives, like all of the research has come from either that group or um, one of the things I was going to bring up earlier and I forgot to is that there's a, a, a collection of access points for um, places to get data without having to ask mm -hmm. for it. So for people that just want to try to find it on their own, there's like a, a graph that's up there that points to like all the different ways to find stuff, a spreadsheet that exists that uh, looks like it's continuously updated and edited to um, find different ways to find papers. And uh, I literally have that as like one of my saved tabs because I use it so right. often. It's, you know, I, it's one of those things that just, it's so simple, yet it makes such a significant difference and just giving people access to things that uh, can make meaningful change in terms of doing research and things that you're interested in, keeping the, the public ownership of things like science and all of these other things that become very ivory tower. And I, I'm not sure, and this is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but I, I'm very curious if that is a component of why there's so much anti-intellectualism today is because that knowledge is so inaccessible, even if somebody wants to find it. I kind of agree. I think it's it's much more, for example, like even if many of the, let's say, papers in the sciences were suddenly made accessible, I doubt that they would be of use. They're definitely too complicated in most cases. Yeah, exactly. And it, even if, if we were able to, let's say, give an independent researcher access to these papers, there's like, what can you do without a lab? You know what I mean? What can you do without collaborators? Um, like, there's just not much, I think, in, in much of the sciences that's, that's possible to do in, in a certain sense, even if you had access. I think it's much more a question of like, this anti-intellectualism exists as like it's it's like a necessary function of this like colonial system which is that that research is not really being prevented from let's say people on the street in america and in canada that research is being held back from people in romania in ghana in india in pakistan you know those are the people who are being held back from that research because the thing is they have access to laboratories in those countries right they have access to collaborators in those countries but what they don't have is the ability to pay like $2 million for a general subscription, you know? So those are really the people who I think are the targets of this, this theft ultimately, sure. you know, because I mean, if we, if we were, if we were to like zoom out of this system and look even bigger, the taxpayer funding for Canada, you know, that goes to paying for these things that comes from the, the like mining companies in Canada, for example, that contribute to the Canadian economy, which are like extracting resources from Pakistan and Papua New Guinea and Ghana. You know, so in a sense, it's it's the pillaging of that community originally. 
You know, like that's really what's happening here. And I think the anti-intellectualism is just like a result of the system that those things are fake. So like that's the real goal. And and that's something that we see in our group as well, right? Like if I look at the statistics for, um, so it, Facebook, oh, this is the other thing. Facebook doesn't give you an ability to see statistics on who the group consists of, where they're from. But that database, I own that database. You you get a list of names, but you get no metrics or nothing, nothing at all. Or... Yeah, on Facebook, um, yeah. there's no ability to control. And obviously, you can report, you know, yourself as whatever you want on Facebook. You know, so like we'll have trolls who identify themselves as like, you know, as, as what they perceive to be the person with the least privilege, so that they can then construct this argument about how privilege is this idea gone crazy or something. You know, they they'll sort of come up and say that they're a transgender person of this ethnicity from this part part of the world. And they, for one, don't believe in Black Lives Matter. And you're like, oh my God, you, you know, it, like it's so, it's so obvious that these things happen, but the lack of transparency Facebook gives you in dealing with these invented uh, users is none, like nil. We get no ability to control this whatsoever, which, which can make things very difficult. Honestly, it can make things super hard. You know, you have this person who has like a Malcolm X, profile photo posting the most insane things just to get people energized and excited and like just like foaming at the mouth about taking a shit on someone else who's actually sort of trying to be thoughtful and working on it so to go back to the group and you talked a little bit about how administration works i'm curious about kind of how the volunteerism plays into longevity and involvement and things like that i think there are like I'm going to say like four to five year sort of cycles, you know, like there's a particular part in your life where you have this drive to be, you know, to, to feel like you're a part of actually creating the life you want to live, you know, and you're like actively working. And that's not so much a volunteer job as it is your like daily affirmations that like I can make the world that I want to live in, you know. And so that volunteerism really is like uh, the output of that feeling that you have. And in my experience, most people who like that, that sort of works itself out or maybe works itself into different parts of your life. I'm not sure over like four or five years. And so we, we'll kind of get these cycles of like people who join the group. They last about four to five years towards the end. We sort of start to tail off, become less active moderators or, or suppliers of, of content. And then they just sort of drop off the radar and then we kind of, you know, start the cycle of finding new moderators again. That That's, that's just been my experience so far. When people ask for content, does there always seem like there are people willing to help out or just, are there, um, I, I'm just trying to think about like the, the necessary volunteerism versus the demand uh, that that's out there. Is there a balance in it or does it, does it seem to like naturally just be enough volunteers to meet the demand for various papers or is there like a significant input from people like administration or a handful of people that kind of, absorb a lot of that work in a way like that that exact imbalance initially is where the database and the the chart and all of that came from as a way to remedy that and and that was definitely an imbalance earlier on there were a lot more people obviously requesting things than were prepared to supply things but i think we're doing pretty well now the number of uh, unanswered requests is quite low and is often because those those resources are like genuinely not available. You know, maybe it's like a pre-publishing book or there's just no one who has access to that specific library or that specific university's library. Um, but we've been 
you know, the, the success rate of requests has been pretty high, which is, you know, which is good. So the like self-organization kind of works once you get to a certain, a certain size. Um, and I'm just kind of thinking, I wouldn't say the organization works. I would say the, (laughs) the access that, that, uh, that, that scale provides. Yeah. So like, at what scale, like, when did you start to notice it? Was it when the group was at like 20, 25,000 or was it larger? Or do you just not really remember? Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just been a slow thing. Sure. Honestly, I don't think that there's maybe, I mean, I'm sure Facebook has like a magic number, but I think that that number really depends on the platform. Yeah. I was just kind of curious if it, if there was like a number where it's like, oh, once we had this many people, there was enough people with different resources that it kind of finally just gelled a little bit. You know, as somebody that doesn't have a background in organizing big groups and what you guys are doing and while I did work in academia once, that was a decade ago now. Is there anything that you think people aren't aware of that's kind of going on in the background of things of organizations like this or in academia that you think is important to talk about? I mean, we, I think the most important thing to know is the cross connectivity of research across countries, honestly, is such a huge, such a huge thing. And in the acknowledgement of that cross connectivity, sometimes I think we, or at least that I've seen on the group, and also sometimes in university, we lose sight of the purpose of much of our coalition building or organization building. You know, so for example, if we look at, you know, one of the most popular online sources that like scrapes journals, you know, obviously illegally from uh, publishing websites is uh, Sci-Hub, right? Just founded by this Kazakhstani student in, I don't know, sometime in the mid 2000s, I think, or something like that. And if we look at the statistics of papers requested from Sci-Hubs, from Sci-Hub, the papers requested, so something like 20%, which is a huge chunk, the most of any sort of category, something like 20% of those papers are papers in medicine. And of all papers on Sci-Hub, 70% are requested by countries that are not North America, Western Europe, or uh, sort of developed East Asia. You know, so what kind of research exactly are people stealing? It's, you know, it's like literally medicine um, in countries that honestly are, will like hugely benefit from access to these resources. And so often we'll have, we'll have arguments on the group. Um, sometimes I think from a point of concern, sometimes from a place that's hard to tell if it's a troll or if it's, <clears throat> or if it's not a troll, where it'll be a question of, let's say some question of a certain form of rights or a certain a question about equity that exists in North America, maybe in Western Europe, but that is so far from the radar in many of these countries that it almost makes no sense to, you know, sort of start from that place, those requests, you know, not that those requests aren't, not that those concerns aren't valid, you know, but, but it's just like, man, you don't understand. You know what I mean? Like the, the place that this person is requesting this research from is might as well be a different universe from the one we live in, you know? So sometimes these kind of questions they often feel like a troll is asking them, you know, because it'll be like, it'll be pointing to the fact that this person who's requesting medical research is, this is an example I've seen over and over again, is stealing the work of, let's say, a black doctor who published his work in Princeton, 
at Princeton. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, black people need to be compensated for their labor. And, you know, I absolutely agree. But what am I going to do? Ask this guy from Romania to donate like 0.1 euros to this black professor? Like, how is that going to work? You know what I mean? Like, this is the the level of like cognitive distance conversation that's required here is so much beyond my capacity and our capacity as a group to remedy but at the same time i doubt that even if we requested that document through the official sources that professor at princeton is not seeing two cents of that money you know what i mean like he published that because that's his contractual agreement with princeton so like, what really are we trying to remedy here? You know, so sometimes we have these conversations that are very difficult to moderate on the group because they fall into these sort of, you know, I don't want to call them traps, but it's like the inability to see that this colonialism exists globally and not just, you know, within the, let's say like North American or European context. And that's a very hard conversation to have on Facebook with 100,000 people. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things I've definitely seen happening in the group. I, I'm just like, this is out of control. And it's really interesting to kind of hear their perspective. Uh, in a way, I probably I don't think I've really ever thought about it. Uh, it makes a lot of sense now that you've said it. But it's just, I don't know, it never really occurred to me. Yeah, if people aren't aware of the group and they want to find it, they can find it on Facebook, asks for a PDF from people with institutional access. Any, any final thoughts? Uh, no, I'm, you know, there are definitely a lot of differing, differing viewpoints about many of the things I've expressed my opinion on, not only within members of our excellent and hardworking admin team, but also um, people on the group itself. I, I don't mean to speak for them at all. Um, there are definitely a lot of other uh, valid viewpoints. As always, if you enjoy the episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on new and exciting guests. We appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation. This is Elliot. This is Andy. With the Poor Pearls Almanac. <laughs>